0: So I actually was streaming this game a couple of weeks ago in preparatory for this situation uh, showing off a couple of things and etc. And one of my viewers on the stream asked you know, should I buy this game? A fairly common question I get uh, semi-regularly, actually. And so my response was freaking buy it. Just, Just freaking buy it. Yes, buy this game. And he was like, well that's not enough for me. So I spent the next... However many minutes it was, it was several minutes discussing the ways the game was amazing. At the end of which the viewer said, "So what you're saying is I should freaking buy it." <laughs> that is kind of Kingdoms of Amalur in a nutshell. Freaking buy it now. I'm going to cover a few topics before I really jump into the rumination proper here. First of all, this game is $20 brand new on Steam. That's the PC version. If you prefer the console version, I'm not actually sure how much that is. That obviously fluctuates more. But it's not going to be more than 20 bucks. I almost guarantee you. If you wait for a Steam sale, it's about 5 bucks. Given the recent... Uh media coverage about games being worth their buck and how long a game is versus how much money you're willing to pay into a game, etc. And the fact that some players literally will refuse to buy a game full price uh, if it's not so many hours and whatnot. By the way, no judgment, it's just this is a true thing and a lot of people have been paying attention to this topic lately. Given that, the fact that this is a game that you can get for $20 new that, well, admittedly I haven't 100%ed. I have about 60%ed so far and I, I literally had to cut myself off. I had to chop myself off and stop doing all the quests and all the extra content because I was just running out of time. I've been playing this game since November. Uh, Last I checked, which was not counting the playtime I did today, I was at 71 hours on this game. Yeah. (laughs) Now, that being said, uh, with regards to whether or not you should buy it, it is worth noting that there are... Uh, I'm going to be talking, of course, over the next several minutes, mostly about gameplay. My first page here is almost entirely uh, about the function of the game, the gameplay, the way it's presented, etc. With the second page being more lore-related stuff. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll obviously be quantifying my opinion here, but one thing I want to get out here really quick. There are two significant barriers to entry in this game. I will be honest about that. The one of them I already basically told you. It's huge. Kingdoms of Amalur is a huge game, on par with any Bioware or Bethesda game. In some cases, beating them out for sheer size, quantity, and quality. Or not quality, but... I mean, the, the point I'm trying to mean is, it's not just, and go kill five boars! There's lots of stuff to do, and virtually all of it is worth doing. I'll be talking about that a little bit later as far as the quest. So, that's kind of a barrier to entry, because not everyone has the time to dedicate to a game like that. If you do, freaking buy it. Um there is one other barrier to entry, and that's what I call the Hollywoodization. Now I'll be talking about that a little bit more later, but the simple fact is I know this game looks like a flashy, empty, Hollywoodized action RPG. It isn't. Trust me. Now, one thing I made a rule to myself that I would not talk about in this game is the financial troubles that have resulted in a rather sad situation. I was actually following the whole situation with the various companies. I don't want to name names, I don't want to point to people, I don't want to be like it's their fault. In my honest opinion, I'm only going to tell you two things. One is that I'm not going to tell you anything about it other than the second thing, and the second thing is, it is my opinion, financially speaking and as a gamer, that the blame is on many, many different parties involved. There's no one person you could point to and say, you screwed this situation up. It was a mess. The financial situation was a genuine screwball mess, and it's kind of easy to see why some parties reacted the way they did. That being said, no, I have not forgiven the state of Rhode Island, but not for that. It's for another reason, and again, I'm not going to talk about it, but for those of you who know about the situation, you probably know why I have a grudge against them specifically. Moving on. Now... Let's go ahead and talk about the base premise of this game, just a little bit. This is a world where everything is faded. okay? Now I'm going to be talking about what that really means after we get past the uh, spoiler marker uh, when we get to the second page of things. But the point is, everything is faded. therefore you always know what everything is going to happen to everyone. Uh, As I tried to explain on my stream, let's say you were fated to kill a hundred people and you decided to leap off a cliff to escape that, that wouldn't work. Something would happen. Something would would intervene to either save your life or arrange it so that your death would still kill all those people that you were fated to kill. You cannot escape your fate in this setting, with the exception of the player character. And that is the premise in a nutshell. Everything is fated. Everything is written down in the history book of Destiny, except you. Now, it's hard to explain this to people who don't really think about time in a... uh, well, in the same way I do, to, be, to put it into those terms, I don't even know what to call that. But imagine, if you will, there's a book. And you're writing this book, and you're writing the pieces of the people, and all of a sudden, well, something happens that just changes the words on the page. For, like, not just the page you're writing, but all the pages you've already written, and will also affect all the pages you're going to write. The reason why, and, and to explain what I mean here, whatever's writing the book, the fate, does not even recognize that you exist. So you change the fates of other people around you, but at no point in time are you fated to do anything. You aren't even fated to be free from fate. You don't exist to fate. And therefore, that's why I say the, the pages just suddenly start rewriting themselves, because the character, the, and this is very metaphysical, but the character in the book that is changing the fates of these other people is someone... You can't see. You, the author of this book, cannot identify, cannot see. So you're just trying to write around it, but everything just keeps getting changed on you, and etc., etc., until you just throw the book in the fire! Screw it! A book that rewrites itself, that's just crazy. But that is the world they live in, and it explains a lot of the things about the setting and the culture and whatnot. But anyways, that basic premise was something that was the game was sold to me on. When I first saw the game come out, there's a demo out. If you're, if you're still on the edge of buying this thing, uh, there's a demo out which is like an hour of free gameplay. And it really is an hour of just, here's the game. Obviously, you can't get that far. You're you're stuck within the first region. But the point remaining, you can do a lot of stuff in that hour. And it was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and try this because the very concept of being the one person outside of time, for all intents and purposes, was something that was really engaging to me. And then I actually played it and loved the hell out of the gameplay, and that led us to me really recommending this game. For those who are curious, I've actually played this game only twice. Uh, once... You know, or much earlier than now and once for this rumination. Despite only having played this game twice, I do absolutely think it deserves to be in the art category, the top 100. So, take that for what it's worth. It's going to be a lot of praise for this game. It's not a perfect game, but a lot of praise. Um, the other interesting thing about the fate thing is two two facets of this. Number one, it's very meta. What I mean by this is in a game with NPCs who have scripted actions who cannot act in any way except for what they are scripted to do, the only one who has a choice in what they do is the one controlled by the player, aka the one not recognized by fate, in this case the code of the game, you, the person who's not in the software. Nicely meta, but it also ties into gameplay. For those of you who don't know, uh, one of the other Selling points of this game in addition to the story is the fact that it's it is it is a very action RPG game And you can play as a rogue a fighter a mage a rogue fighter a rogue mage a fighter mage or a rogue fighter mage Any of those are feasible personally by the way I recommend rogue fighter mage for reasons. I'll discuss later so the fact that you can switch between disciplines seamlessly, literally in the middle of a swing, you could be like, smash them with a giant great hammer and then immediately stab them with a dagger and then cast a spell immediately after. No pausing in between. That is actually implied, although never started, stated outright, to be a side effect of the fact that you have that control over fate. That, that absence from fate. You can literally do whatever because you have that capacity, if that makes any sense. Um, so that's a nice way to do that, admittedly. Now... Should I talk about that here? No, I don't think I will. Um, what to talk about next? Let's. Uh, well, I talk about the Hollywoodization. The game uh, again, it looks very much. It very it looks very Hollywood, very flashy, very. Uh, you know, uh, we have seen a lot of flashy games in the last ten years or so that have turned out to be really good. The God of War series, several of the Demon's Cry's, the Bayonettas, etc. So it shouldn't surprise you that I say, despite being very flashy, it is still very good, as I've been saying this in the whole video video so far. It feels like it should be Empty Flash, a Spectacle Fighter, basically, but it isn't. It's strange the way it works. There is such an in-depth level of culture and lore and society and story and plot and elements of the writing and the, the set design and the the, the the way that the animations flow. I mean, this does feel like what I would call an actual AAA game should, should look like. For those of you curious what I mean by that, In my definition, what a AAA game should be is a game that is very, very polished, very, very well produced, very, very well executed. And and I mention that specifically because regardless of the content and how that content, uh, you know, what kind of content that is, shooter or RPG or whatever, it should be very well executed, very well presented, and very well polished. So no matter what it is, its delivery to us is amazing. That's in my opinion, of course. So this truly does feel like a AAA game to me. Now It does have some bugs. Um, my favorite bug... I can even describe how the bug happens. uh, All the in-game cutscenes... uh, In fact, virtually every cutscene in the entire game, with the exception of, I think, three, are done with the in-game engine. So that means they just take control of your skeleton and make you do an animation while the cutscene's playing. The very moment, however, the animation stopped playing my character defaulted to wherever, wherever they were actually standing in the world, where they, where they would be when the cutscene ended. So I'd be like, oh my god. And then like in a millisecond, in a blink, I'd be standing over there, just literally just standing, like completely different, like in, over in the corner, looking into a corner. And then I'd warp back to do the next animation of, oh my god. And then I'd be back in the corner. <laughs> um, there are a few bugs. I, I didn't see any game-breaking bugs. I know a few exist, mostly with regards to some quests which you can make uncompletable. Um, I'm not talking about the one that happened on the stream. Uh, for example, there is a quest to uh, get like all of the gravestones in the whole world. Yes, all of them. And uh, if you do it at a certain time, you basically are screwed and can't actually complete that quest. You know, Stuff like that. There are a few quests that you can do that on. The wiki is pretty good about giving, getting information about which quests you need to avoid bugs on and how to bypass them. Uh, also, the uh, latest patch I had on Steam actually fixed quite a few of these bugs, so that's nice too. But again, nothing I saw that was game-breaking, and nothing I saw that actually irritated me, bug-wise. Everything uh, was basically what I usually like to call the Elder Scrolls-style bug, a.k.a. something that just makes me laugh whenever I see it. The world was built by R.A. Salvatore, or Salvatore, I never know how to pronounce his name. Good man. Um, That's significant, because I want to mention this. The story, well, the plot, was not made by Salvatore. The writing was not done by Salvatore. The world was done by Salvatore, okay? That's significant, because in my personal opinion, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack from this, from Greek geek circles, Salvatore is not that great of a writer, but he is an amazing world builder. I've often said that the reason why Faerun is as interesting and engaging as it is, is because of Salvatore. Not just because of Drizzt, but because of the world that was built around that character and the characters connected to him. And that's mostly on Salvatore's shoulders. He's really good at that sort of thing. And it really shows, because this world is huge you could tell that this really was designed to be a franchise this was not just a world that they built for a one-off game they intended to do something with this world (sighs) um i I guess this is as good as time as any to talk about it i i have one huge complaint about this game and it is the biggest complaint about this in fact it is the only complaint i would say actually detracts from my enjoyment of the game every other complaint i could say would be nitpicking or niggling at best So there's really only one big negative if I was reviewing this, and that is that we'll never get a Kingdoms of Amalur 2. For those of you who don't know, when they were making this game, they were actually making an MMO, the Kingdoms of Amalur. (sighs) Similar along the line, and again, I, I promised myself I wouldn't go into things, they decided for various reasons to go ahead and make a prequel. Single-player RPG prequel set in the world. Uh, And it's funny because if you look at the story of Kingdoms of Amalur, Age of Reckoning, blah, 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 whatever the actual subtitle is of this specific game, you could summarize all the major events of the game in an opening cutscene to another game. Now, I know that sounds weird, because you could say that about a lot of things, but the structure of it is very much like the tale. You can tell that they took what was the opening cutscene, the opening title crawl of, and then, you know, the Fate guy who was outside of Fate changed the world forever in these various ways. I'm not going to say anything, because there's no spoilers. Um, and then, you know, and then the game starts, the MMO starts. And yet, they did such a good job of that, that it was really engaging going through it, and I'm very, very glad they made the prologue, Because if they didn't, there's a good chance we never would have gotten anything. If this game had come out in an MMO in the time it did, it probably would have bombed. But at the very least, it would have been nice to at least play through it once. Because, God, I really want to play the sequel to this game. And we never will! It's gone! Screw you, Rhode Island! (sighs) Moving on. So, the game... Okay, let's talk about... I I mentioned Niggles. It is a very side-quest-heavy game. Uh, as just about any Western RPG is, really. Mo- virtually every Western RPG I've ever seen uh, tends to be big on side quests. I like the way they structure this one, okay? It's like this. There's the main quests. There's really only three main quests. The the main one, the DLC, and the other DLC. By the way, uh, if you get the Steam version of this game, you get the DLCs with it. I recommend it. They're good stuff. Uh, it's, it's more content, more story, more lore, blah, blah, blah. So just consider that a recommendation. I don't know how that works with the console, to be honest with you. Anyways, so those are the three main quests. Boom. So in other words, the main plots. Then there's the faction quests. Now this is straight out of any Elder Scrolls game. You've got what is effectively the Fighter's Guild with the Warsworn. I'll be talking about these factions a little bit later when I get to the lore section. You've got the Fighter's Guild, the Thieves' Guild, the various houses, etc. And those quests uh, are usually decently long, several quests long, usually very story-driven. I shouldn't even say usually. They're always very story-driven, a lot of character, good, good character stuff. You almost always have a choice, usually just one choice at the end of those quests, and that kind of changes a few things with regards to how it ends up, etc. And uh, then you have side quests. Now, this is how they're labeled in your log, but in my opinion, it would be best to relabel those mentally to regional quests because with with no exceptions all the things that were side quests were still lore-relevant, re- lore still story focused and almost always had to do with fleshing out the particular area you're in right now. Everything about the, uh, the Crimson Bandit idiots whose name I can't remember at the beginning of the game are a good example of that the whole deal with the desert and the rogue fae is a good example of that you know all those stories were fleshed out in the side quests so again those are basically regional quests which blings me with the tasks the Tasks are the only quest in this game that I can't really recommend you, you do. They're, they're basically just, here's some gold and money to go do X of Y. Usually they have a little bit of a threadbare of story to them, but it is extremely threadbare. For example, we've been attacked by this area a lot, and oh my god, everyone's being poisoned by the creatures that are attacking us. Please go out and help me get these things so I can get cure the poison, etc. Not really much of, much of a story, just the most threadbare of things. So if you want something to skip, that's my opinion. Go ahead and skip all the, uh, all the tasks. Um, oh yeah, I mentioned this on my stream. Uh, there's a, there's a, something in the options menu to, uh, to change your sprint option. There's one to hold and one to press. Those are the options. Now, to demonstrate, I mean, this is on the keyboard, of course, but in order to sprint in hold mode, you have to hold W and shift, which is basically like this. You have to be holding W and shift the whole time. Uh, If you press, you hold W and you tap shift to start and just activate sprint mode. I strongly recommend, given how much running around and how huge this world is, uh, to shift that to press, not hold. Um, And yes, I made a point of noting that because it it made such a difference in my uh, enjoyability of this game. Speaking of which, crafting... Crafting is fascinating, and actually I think this is good, Uh, the game designer in me likes this idea. It's like this. You effectively have two options to play this game. You can craft, or you can not craft. Now I know that sounds kind of weird, but what I mean by this is if you don't craft, you'll have decent amounts of money because you'll be selling all the loot you get. And all that will get you enough gold in order to buy upgrades and new potions and new buff items and whatever it is you need in the next town, right? So great. If you craft, you have almost no money because all of your uh, all the things you could sell are being broken down into parts in order to make new stuff. However, you will always have brand new gear and potions and buff items, etc. because you're just making your own. In other words, both methods are fully feasible. And I like that. That is really good game design in my opinion. Making both possibilities fully optional. And it's worth noting that uh, it's easy to go from crafting to golding if you just want to stop crafting very, very quickly and easily. It is not as easy to go into crafting because you really need to be spending those skill points every level on blacksmithing, alchemy, and sagecraft in order to really make that worthwhile. So, not perfect, but still very good stuff. So, uh, for, for the curious, I was actually focusing very heavily on crafting. That is my playstyle in general. And just like in most games, uh, especially Western RPGs, where you can craft your own stuff... I was a walking death machine thanks to my gear, after a while. Which brings me to my next point. This uh, very much feels like an MMO in terms of levels. Let me explain what I mean. When it comes down to it, there are usually three methods of increasing player power in an RPG. Levels. Now, a lot of JRPGs do this, some Western RPGs do it, but the point is the focus is on your level. Your level being a higher level makes you stronger in a significant and noticeable way. In other words, if we were to track on a on a bar here the total amount of player power you have, say 80% of it is coming straight from your level. That's the leveling method. Second method is a little rarer, rarer? Yeah. and uh, usually seen all over the place. There's no specific genre that likes to do it, and that is alternate advancement. Uh, probably the best example that I can think of right off the top of my head is Final Fantasy VII. Materia is a huge way to become powerful in that game. Now, it's not the only way, but if you use Materia to its fullest extent, 80% of your player power comes from Materia, the alternate advancement. MagiCite in FF6, um, the uh, the junctioning in FF8, you know, etc. That's what alternate advancement is. There's several other examples. There's Talents. Uh, they had the other things in EverQuest. I can't remember what they're called, but anyways... And then there's the third method. This is the one Amler uses, and it is the MMO method. Your levels make up about, eh, I'd say about 10% of your overall power, and the way you distribute your skills and talents makes up about another 10%. And the final 80 is your gear. It's probably very obvious why that's called the MMO method. In other words, the idea is you're, you level to get to the point where you can then start getting the gear and if you get really good gear as you're leveling, your, your progress will be much better because you will be so much stronger. Because so much of your power on that bar comes from your equipment. Uh, I, I can name a dozen MMOs that do this because most MMOs do this method. The entire point is so that not only uh, are you focused on your gear and really care about getting new loot, but once you hit max level, you have a reason to keep getting new loot because your, your relative power level doesn't stop going up once you hit max level you keep getting stronger because there's more loot to get and better loot to get. And you see how that works? It's also kind of the Diablo method as another good example of that. Although Diablo is a little more balanced. Diablo is more like 50% uh, loot. But the point is, in Amler it is definitely 80% of your ability and power comes from your loot. Just to demonstrate this, I actually, uh, towards the end of the game, you know, max level 40, whatever it was, um, really nice crafted gear took off all the crafted gear and started trying to fight just basic trash mobs and I was having a hell of a time with them. Now I could beat them, but it took forever. My damage plummeted by like a tenth or or rather to make that more clear, I was doing about 10% of the damage I was doing prior. So I guess I'd be like nine tenths uh, to explain that properly. So much of my combat capacity and live capacity and heal capacity all came from my equipment And I had, like, no mana, too, and no health, so all of a sudden, hits were really creaming me, in addition to the fact that I had no armor, and I had, like, four spells in me before I ran dry. I almost died in that single trash pack, because I was so unprepared for how brutal it was going to be. By the way, for reference, speaking as someone who really enjoys challenge modes, a no-equipment challenge mode actually sounds like a lot of fun in this game, and I kind of am thinking about doing that someday. For that reason, to just completely nerf yourself down that far. Same thing as doing a low-level challenge in, uh, like, Final Fantasy or whatever. So, keep that in mind. Uh, your equipment is going to be your life, your your power in this game. So, really be focused on, on getting the best gear you can. Um, one other thing I like about the hybriding method, I know I touched on this briefly before, is... Um, it's very... They they manage to strike a unique balance. You do have to basically pick early on. Like I said, you only get about 40-something levels before you get level cap. I forget the exact number. Um, so you do want to have a plan in mind because you have a finite amount of points to distribute, and those points are going to determine what uh, builds you're going to be able to do, right? So, for example, if you want to be... Uh, the fully hybrid Universalist build, which, by the way, is what I personally recommend for anybody playing this game for the first time, you need to have 37 points in all three builds, which is going to take you almost to max level in order to do. But once you get there, you're, in, you're insane. You take less damage from everything. You do more damage in everything, and this is really crucial, you get three bonus points in every single one of your skills. Not your combat skills. your are out of combat skills. Crafting, persuasion, you know... Um, you know, I, I, all that kind of stuff, like you would see in a Fallout game. The ability to, uh, to perceive, um, the, the mercantile you know, stat, you know, all that fun stuff. All that is improved by three. All of them are, which is the equivalent of, uh, I think, like 30 levels worth of points that you gain just from managing that. So that's, that's really significant. And of course, like I said, you're better at everything. I also really like switching back and forth between daggers, uh, swords, shields, and magic. But that's my playstyle. But my point I'm trying to reach here is that if you want to be just a warrior, you can. It is actually very rewarding to be just a warrior. It is very rewarding to be just a rogue, and it's very rewarding to be just a mage. There's enough abilities with enough diversity that you can put points into, and the bonuses you get for your specialization are sufficiently high that no matter what you pick, it is good, as long as you're still progressing. And hence, the one, you know, the focus, the duos, or the single trio all work out really, really well. And that kind of balance is very difficult to pull off, and I think they did a really good job of that. Speaking of which, um, the specs give you bonuses. That's really all it boils down to. Like I said, the Universalist one, for having 37 points and everything, uh, gives you all the bonuses I mentioned earlier. They have another thing called Twists of Fate. This is really cool. This is something I actually do in my D&D campaigns. It's basically another way to make you more powerful that is solely related to story and I like that. A twist of fate is literally, you've done this particular quest arc to completion, and as a result of of, of the lore, of the story of the world changing, you are now stronger in dot 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 kind of a way. And in almost all of those uh, faction quests I mentioned where you have a choice, that choice will affect which twist you get, so you can get different bonuses based on your choice. I really like that. It's a great method and kind of fits in the thing. Um... I made a uh, point here, the, the game kind of plays like a console game, but not really. Uh, it only took me a few minutes, and I mean literally just less than, a, less than an hour to really get used to the controls. Mouse for camera, WASD for moving, buttons for doing, you know, it, it was all very smooth and quick for me. Uh, I actually cannot picture playing this game on a controller personally, that's just my preference. But the reason I bring this up is this is a better PC port than Skyrim. It is worth noting that Skyrim is better on the PC with mods, but Amalur is better on the PC without mods. Now, that's kind of a bad example because Skyrim is kind of a really bad PC port, to be blunt. However, it is, my point I'm trying to make here is that Amalur is a very good PC port, and I do recommend it if you prefer to play on the PC. Uh, there, speaking of mods, there are virtually no mods for Amalur. There are some. I went looking. Uh, I decided not to mod it for this playthrough. It's mostly cosmetic aesthetic stuff, and, you know, here's how to change this thing and that thing. Very little stuff, not really worth getting into, all things considered. I mentioned that I had another niggle. Or rather, that I had several niggles. One of the other ones is the respawning. It gets tedious, to, given how much you run around in this world, for the fact that there's almost always enemies there. It's one of the things that contributes to its MMO feel. You go to town, and it's he's like, okay. And then you leave town, and the enemies that you just killed maybe like five minutes ago are, right, are already back, and they're still in the same spot. And it is actually very difficult to run through enemies. Possible. By the end of the game, I was actually getting really good at it. There's kind of a, a way to do it, kind of a buck and weave thing. Um, it's possible to do, but it's irritating to have to constantly run from battles. Because, not because you're, you know, you're low on health or whatever, but because I don't really have any reason to be fighting these things. They're just going to waste my time. You know, it felt tedious. And it's probably one of the only things, gameplay-wise, that actually bugged me about this game. Amalur is a unique game in the fact that it is kind of a mix of a large number of Western RPG-style things. Um, I saw someone make a list once. It was about 12 different games and all their influences and how they were felt in the game. I'm going to give you a much smaller list. Oblivion, Fable... World of Warcraft, and God of War. Or Devil May Cry or Bayonetta. They're all basically analogous here. But God of War, I feel, works better for reasons I'll go into in a minute. The Oblivion influence is really obvious. Some people have actually called this an Oblivion clone. Uh, Those people are stupid and don't deserve to be considered. Because that's like calling Wildstar a WoW clone. On the surface? Yeah, totally! Totally! When you actually look at it with any level of depth or, or actually analysis whatsoever, no. Now, there are some bare structures, structural similarities between Oblivion and Amalur. It's got uh, the ability to attack NPCs in town. It's got a crime system. It's got you know crafting, as I already mentioned. It's got a lockpick thing. It's got faction-based quests. It's got a main quest thing. Uh, etc. Et it has a bit of level scaling. It's very strange the way they do it. Um, essentially what happens is enemies can scale within a range to your level. For example, that that given enemy over there will have a range of like level 3 to level 8. And if you happen to be level 8 or higher, then it will be level 8. But it'll never go above a level 8. But then there's the fact that their health also scales based on a lot of other factors which also includes your health. And it's just kind of weird. Um, But the bottom line is, it never bothered me the way that scaling does in other games. In fact, to be blunt, I almost never even noticed the scaling. Uh, I only noticed it once when I enacted a very, very uh, horrible bug, which I will... uh, Which I did on purpose, it's worth noting. I was actively trying to make it happen. Basically, I gave myself a bajillion health, and then everything else had a bajillion health, and battles started taking, like, 40 minutes (laughs) with a spider. (laughs) Um... So that's how Oblivion has felt. The way Fable has felt, the, uh, the three disciplines thing, you know, fighter, mage, uh, rogue, and the fact that you can really focus on one or try to do a hybrid thing, and uh, to a degree, the way the towns are laid out and some of the action RPG elements do feel like Fable done right. Uh, I've often heard Kingdom of Zambler be described as this is what Fable should have been. And it's actually a fairly accurate statement. Uh, if, if Fable had come out as this game, I would have played the hell out of it. Oh my god, I would have bought an Xbox for that game. Um, the World of Warcraft elements are very obvious. I've already mentioned several ways this game is very MMO-y. The respawns, the the way the market kind of moves with you, the fact that you increase your bag size by buying new bags. You know, Granted, there's other games that do that. There are several MMO aspects of it. That's just all I'm going to say. And uh, finally, the God of War thing. See, I mentioned the action RPG thing, but really... I, I can't think of many action RPGs that are this much action. Most action RPGs tend to hit more or less right in the middle ground of, you know, turn-based combat and fully fluid, you know, God of War combat, but this is, like, way over here. In fact, if not for the fact that you have equipment and can switch between weapons, like like I said, instantly, this would feel like it's like it's playing like a God of War or a Devil May Cry or a Bayonetta. It, it feels like that, gameplay-wise, and I like that. I love that gameplay style. Um, that is something to work note. If you don't enjoy the combat of this game, like I said, there's that demo to try, you're probably not going to like this game because that is the combat of this game all throughout. And there's lots of combat in this game, so keep that in mind. Other thing that that I meant to make me mention, uh, God of War specifically, is the takedown things. I guess I'll talk about that here. Um, This is a a, a great example of, of story and gameplay integration. There's a lot of that in this game. You are outside of fate. Like I mentioned, you know, the person rewriting the story that the author can't even see. So, under certain circumstances, you can perform a Reckoning move. It, it, reckoning, it, again, is very much like God of War. You activate it, every enemy on the screen is slowed down, you're sped up, you do more damage, you have greater range on your attacks, etc. You're basically better in every way, and they're worse in every way. And you can do a Finishing move on anyone you've reduced to zero health. So, if you do a Finishing move... You do this little animation and do something really cool, I'll talk about it in a minute, and then you kill them and then time reverts to normal and you get bonus X. And there's a different type of killing blow special thing you can do with each type of enemy. It's always going to be the same type of attack for the same type of enemy. But given how many types of enemies there are, that's quite a few different attacks you can do throughout the course of the thing. Quite a few different uh, you know, finishing moves. The other thing I mentioned... What you do, and I want to stress that I mean this as literally as possible, you rip their fate out of them and physically beat them to death with it. To explain what I mean by this, let's say you walk upon, because you're hideously evil, you walk upon a a villager, and that villager is going to live for another 60 years, he's fated to live another 60 years, and grow old, and have kids, and he's going to meet this sweetheart, and then you know he's, she's going to die in a cobalt attack, and he's going to be heartbroken, and he's going to devote himself to this mission, he's going to help heal these people, and get these people together, all this stuff across his next 60 years of life. You just ripped all of that out of him and beat him to death with it. Physically. That's why I mean you change the whole of the book with basically everything you do, and in fact that leads to a major theory which I will not be mentioning now because we're going to say that up the spoiler section. Uh, but one of my big theories about the game is is related to that. It is really cool uh, when you when you do the finish the finishing move on a lot of the bosses. Uh, the Balor is a great example of that. There's uh, so let's talk about the story a little bit. We're not into the spoiler stuff yet. Um, So, so much world building. There are, it's not even just, you know, it's it's a fleshed out setting. There are cultures, plural, here. There are dialects and local customs for specific areas within a specific area, you know? Like how you'll see different things in a town versus in the state that that town is, you know, that kind of thing. There is so much detail put into that that I just scream every time I say it. It's like, ah, you know, fangasm or whatever, because it's so good. Um, there are, there's not that many characters that receive a lot of screen time, but I'm going to say two things in favor of it number one, the characters who got lots of screen time are great, and one of them is voiced by the guy who did Kanderous Ordo back in Knights of the Old Republic, and he's also a really awesome character, so thumbs up there um, the second thing is related to that they got a really good performance out of the voice actors in this one I, at no point in time did I get any point where I was just like, ugh, at a voice actor. I love Oblivion to death. But the voice acting problem problem in Oblivion is a very significant one, all things considered. Not just the, the, the fact that there's so few of them, but that one voice actor, and I'm not going to name his name. Someone on the stream actually looked it up and figured out his name. But that one voice actor who just does the wrong emphasis and all the wrong syllables, you know, stuff like that and has no idea how to say, to say sentence structure, basically. None of that here. Great voice acting. they got some really talented uh, actors. Jim Cummings is in this. Laura Bailey is in this. As I mentioned earlier, the guy who did Candice Ordo is in this. Uh, you're probably going to recognize a few voices uh, if you play through this game. Uh, and the characters that they have, I guess there's actually a third point here, they do have some good development. Uh, the guy who played Candice Ordo... Agarth or Agarn. I can't even remember his name. Uh, he did have some really great character moments in character development. So did Alan. Uh, so did several of the characters I not want to name right now. Most notably the bad guy. <laughs> so, good stuff all over round. There's also a really undercurrent theme in this game. Now, you'd think it's fighting fate, but that, that's not really it. The actual theme of this game that I've noticed is that of courage. Very Zelda-y, actually, in its own way. Uh, and, and now, granted, I've, it's always been implied in Zelda, You know, the fact that a, a boy or a teenager or whatever can go and do the things that he does, which would cause most sane men to literally just disintegrate mentally and, and not be able to emotionally handle it. Link goes off and does. You know, and, and And the courage that is necessary to do that is not just within the Triforce. It is a very fundamental theme of how the game works, right? And there's all sorts of theories about that. But that really is very strongly emphasized in this one. Not just in the main character, not just in the player character, but in all the NPCs around them. Your very existence inspires courage in others, inspires others to do things they would never even consider doing. Part of that is the fate shifting, but most of it is... Well, let me put it to you this way. Imagine that you're fated to do A, B, C. Now, keep in mind, I didn't mention this earlier, this is actually kind of fundamentally important. You know that you're fated to do A, B, C... There are people who can actually read your fate. And unlike in, oh, I don't know, say real life, they will predict it accurately. 100% accurately, I might add. They will tell you exactly what's going to happen to you. They can tell you some of what's going to happen after you die, you know? So you know ABC is going to happen to you. Given that, you also know you don't really have to try. Not really, because it's going to happen anyways, right? Then you see someone who has no fate. They have pure, unadulterated free will. And they are choosing to do these things, these acts of of daring and courage, and again, the link factor. Pulling off things that would make most people go, ahhh. That's inspiring in its own way. And you can see several NPCs are inspired by what you choose to do. There's a great line by one of the kings you meet, who's voiced by the guy who played Balthier. Or no, no, not Balthier, that's actually a different actor. Uh, He's voiced by the guy who played uh, Cecil in Final Fantasy IV DS. I can't think of his name either, but he's a good actor. Anyways, um, you talk to him, and he says a great line, which I don't remember word for word, but it's basically, there have been many people who have been fated to be heroes and have done so because it is their duty and courage and you know whatnot. You, without any requirement or strings upon you, have chosen to do so, which makes it all the more greater. This world is very patterned. It's wonderful because... It's patterned literally, and it's patterned metaphorically. The very layout of certain areas adheres to a sort of pattern, which I don't know how to describe. It's almost a subliminal thing. Um, But almost everything bears the same concept of the spiral. It's an overarching motif throughout the entire work. Pay attention sometime if you play through it, or if you've played it, think about it for a while. The spiral is represented everywhere in this game. Often in very subtle ways, like the layout of a dungeon or the way the ground works, etc. I love that because at the very, 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 very end of the game as you're approaching the last boss, there are banners up that bear her symbol. And it's a spiral. The entire world is patterned. And that was very deliberately done. Because this is a world governed by fate. The world is patterned. That's that metaphorical part. The world literally has to run along its same cue that is destined to do. Well, we're going to go ahead and do a spoiler alert. Let me, uh, I haven't used this one. Well. Let's see if I'm, uh, rustier. I-, I think I did it right? Yeah, whatever. I'll just assume it went right. Spoilers ahoy. Here's the thing about fate. And, and I wanted to do the spoiler warning before I really got into this because I cannot talk about the fate of this world without getting into spoilers it is my theory that it's not fate as we usually define it usually when we say fate it is, well it's like the book example um, for those of you who don't know what I mean uh, it's a theory that has to do with the fact that time is already written Everything that already has happened always has happened. Everything that is happening will happen. Everything that is happening in the future is what will always happen. So no matter if you had the ability to, to jump through time or look through time, it's always gonna be exactly the same because it's all already written, right? That's that concept of fate. But that's not what's perceived here. Ignoring the obvious fact that the player character is outside of fate, people do have freedom of will. They just can't escape their fate. There's a very strong undercurrent of the idea that... No matter what you do, you you know, A, B, and C is still going to happen. But a lot of people try to avoid that. A lot of people try to do other things. Try to bypass fate and use whatever knowledge or power or skill at their disposal to avoid it. They fail. But the mere fact that they try and fate has to literally intervene in order to make A, B, and C still happen... That has always given me the impression as I've played through this game that something external is literally trying to guide the world, has invented this fate system in order to try and govern and control things rather than it being, you know, the fundamental example of how existence should be. Now, it's worth noting that that's also in contrast to another theory I'll be getting into in a moment, which I also kind of like, so I'm not really sure what I think, and as always, I, I welcome your guys' thoughts. But it's worth noting, and this is probably one of the biggest things in favor of this, Theory is the fact that when Tirnok dies, you don't even get this until the post game stuff when you talk to the Fate Weavers. When Tirnok dies, fate goes away. Now, I want to make this absolutely clear for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. When you run around in the world, fate still exists. You change fates. Uh, there's several times where this is shown directly. You, uh, someone is fated to do a and then you do some things, and then they, you, you come back and they're getting their fate read, and it says they're now fated to do B. They still have a fate, it is just changed. Okay? That's an important distinction, because once Tirnak dies, fate is gone. It's vanished. Imagine that book analogy I used earlier the book is no more. There is no more book, it was thrown into the fire, like I, like I said earlier now there's a lot of theory crafting on why that is and i'm going to go and touch on that right now even though I, that's that was something i was going to say for the end but it's the thing i find most engaging to talk about so forgive me biggest theory is that tirnok herself was the one projecting that fate for those of you who don't know tirnok is not a dragon in the strictest sense of the word she is a fey now i'll be discussing what a fae is in a moment But for those of you who know this game and know what that means, that's probably very significant. For anybody who didn't pick up on those uh, subtle clues and hints of of her true nature. She is a fae. A very old fae. And a very powerful fae. But she is still just a fae. And the fae as an overall tend to have that kind of self-perpetuation of fate. Uh, The whole telling thing is a great example of the fae themselves actively trying to keep fate going. And fate, therefore, keeps going, so they keep trying to keep it going. Kind of a, you know, a mutual, symbiotic kind of a situation. And again, she had an active interest in making things happen the way they did. It is also worth noting, and I'll talk about this more later, that the world's, what, world was going to end in a matter of years at the absolute latest, assuming the player character didn't intervene. And that's exactly what Tiernock wants. So... The idea that Tiernock was the projector of that fate is a valid one. And yet at the same time, I'm not sure I fully agree with it. Because there's another theory I like much better. Remember how I mentioned earlier the significance and the sheer long-reaching implications of killing one guy? Because he would live 60 more years and do all these things and affect so many different lives. You do that constantly. The entire game. Would it not be interesting if we were to picture fate as... A brick wall. I know this is a weird analogy, but just bear with me. And as you're going throughout the game, you just keep hitting it. And hitting it. And hitting it. And cracking it. Crumbling it. Knocking a brick out here or there. Until finally you do something that literally alters the fate of every single living thing, mortal or fae, on the entire planet. Everything. 100% was affected when you destroyed Tiernock and erased her, extinguished her. Think about that for a moment. The second theory here is that fate broke. You had already weakened the hell out of it by changing it constantly, and then you changed the fates of everyone, literally everyone, simultaneously. And fate just shattered. And that's why fate is no more. And I like that idea. By the way, I mentioned I'd talk about something else here. Um, one of the re- other reasons that this game is so obviously a setup for a, a sequel, especially an MMO, is that sounds like the beginning setup of an MMO, doesn't it? Remember, you, the player character, are the one outside of fate. At the end of this game, fate goes away. So, however many players play the game, they're all free from fate because fate has changed, or rather, fate is gone. Hence the idea of uh, of doing this as an MMO. And also the concept of... I don't know, just continuing the story. I'm, I'm going to segue for just a moment. There are so many empty... plot. Uh, no, I shouldn't say empty. I wouldn't say any plot thread in this game dangles, per se. But all of them end in a way that leaves more questions. More things to happen in the future. It's like culling uh, episode 3 of Star Wars you know it, it's it's kind of like that i mean obviously the story has ended in many ways and there aren't really any dangling plot threads per se but it's clearly a setup for more story and that's true everywhere every regional quest every factional quest and and all of the main quest main things are all setting up for what's going to happen next god i wish we got the sequels game but getting back to the tiernock thing the other interesting thing about tiernock whether Which theory this supports is up to you. Tiernok can affect fate. Not as much as you can. You can utterly rewrite fate. And, as I mentioned earlier, rip fate out of people to beat them to death with it. But Tiernok can affect fate. Alter it. Uh, distort it. The Prismere, uh, for those of you who don't know, Prismir is literally a physical manifestation of the power that she wields. Her power, her tremendous, incredible power, and uh, probably the best example. This is one of the earliest ones we see with the wind, uh, with the uh, the Maid of Windermere who has used the Prismere to, or excuse me, the Prismere to alter her fate. Well, to to distort her fate, but she hasn't actually escaped her fate. She doesn't do that until you come along and either extinguish her or free her. You know, one of the two. As those as you caught my stream, you saw that we uh, we ended up freeing her. Which, unfortunately, ends up meaning we marry her, but whatever. (laughs) I didn't know marriage was a freedom. (laughs) Ha ha! But seriously, though. It was the ability, because she was still trapped in her role. The maid was still a villain. She was still the antagonist. She was still trying to go after the king. She was still obsessed with ABC. You know, she was still trying to control everything. Everything that she was fated to do, she was still doing. She was just doing it in a different way. She was not following the literal exact fate... Just the intention of it. So that's the power of the Prismere and the power of Ternok in general. This is also shown when Ternok herself tries to rip the fate out of you. She can't actually rip all of it out of you. She can't actually do what you can do. But she can splinter it just a little bit and alter your fate just a tiny bit, which then results in you having to literally get your fate back <laughs> from her. By the way, I'm sorry, one other thing uh, I wanted to mention with regards to the MMO setup. You would think with an individual as stupidly, ludicrously powerful and world-changing, like the, the Fateless one, which is what the player characters called, uh, there would be no possibility for a sequel because they would just be too big of an NPC in that game, except they're not powerful anymore. Remember everything I said about how they could switch you know, skills at will and they could change people's fate and, and, and were the only people with free will? All of those advantages have gone away. Now, the Fateless One is still a very skilled whatever-it-is-they-are that they learned and earned, but they are effectively no different than any other high-level adventurer at that point because all of their special abilities have vanished because fate went away. Nicely done touch on their part. I just felt like pointing that out. Let's talk about... uh, One other thing while we're talking about Tiernock here. A lot of the religion in the game revolves around a deity called Lyria, and how Lyria is the deity of fate, and all sorts of other stuff. I'm not going to go into right now. There's a strong theory I've seen many times that when they uh, knowingly or not, when they what they mean when they see Lyria is in fact Tyrnok, that they are actually following. Uh, some vestiges of of teachings that came down from her from forever ago back before Tiernak was sealed, or from people who heard her when she tried to transmute uh, her thoughts out of the world etc etc not just just tossing that out there as food for thought um I, I keep I keep staring at this note and I keep just hesitating because, as I mentioned, I cannot do this game 's lore justice there 's just too much to talk about and i and it 's late and i 'm tired. <laughs> And I don't want to undersell this, but the telling is one of the most interesting things about this game to me in, in terms of pure lore. First of all, let's talk about what the Fae are. Now, this is very important. This distinction is interesting. There are two types of living beings on this world that have sentience, or sapience, or whatever you want to call it. The ability to free, freely think for themselves. Mortals and Fae. Now, here's the funny part. Mortals include humans gnomes, and two types of elves. Fae includes creatures that look kinda like elves and boggarts and trolls and a lot of other various creatures. Those are all effectively the same species. That has some interesting implications, not the least of which being the fact that those creatures do have the same level of capacity for intellect, sapience, et etc, that the, the you know, the, the, the walking around looking like Elves Fae do. They just don't. Now, I'd say by choice, but no, it's by fate, as we mentioned earlier. That had some interesting, uh, That's again, that's one of those things that I would really love to see the implications followed through on in the sequel we'll never get. Ah. But I would love to see a kind of, to summarize excessively, droids from Star Wars situation with those other uh, lesser fey. But the fey, but from now on, when I say fey, I'm mostly going to refer to the elven type fey. Okay, those fey, I want you to imagine the kind of society that would be built around two principles. One, if at any point in time you die, you will reconstitute. It may take a few years, but you will always be back. Death is completely impermanent. Yes, that means elves, who are mortal, can die. Just pointing that out. Um, Two, everything is fated. Everything. The impacts that has on a society are, are monumental. I can't even begin to talk about it. One of my favorite fan fictions of all time was one about a game called Asheron's Call, which you may or may not have heard of. And the fan fiction was all centered around examining the type of society that is built around a world which cannot die. If for those of you don't know, in lore, there's these things called Lifestones in Asheron's Call. So if you die, you're back at the Lifestone. Now you lose a little bit of Vitae, or Vitae if you prefer, which has to be earned back. And you're weakened until you do, but that's a small price to pay for the fact that you get sent right back to your, your uh, Lifestone with your body fully rebuilt and remade. And that's the key part. If you died of something, you know, if you died, oh, and you're disemboweled, and you come back at the Lifestone, you're fully whole again. Think about what the impact that would have on a society. Now, for those of you who watch uh, Torchwood, Miracle Day tried to touch on this, and in my, in my honest opinion, failed miserably. Mostly because they couldn't keep consistent with it, and the story really started to peter out towards the end. But at least in the early parts, they made some really good points about what a world would be like without death. The impact that can have on a society is beyond measure. I, I literally can't even begin to talk about it, and I will not because I wouldn't even know where to begin or end. I would just keep talking for the next five hours, and nobody wants that. Suffice it to say, I find the concept fascinating, and I love the idea of of the way it's presented. I'll give you a specific example. This is my favorite example. I shared that with my sister recently, and she loved it. There's a fae who is the king of the House of Ballads. This is a pretty early on thing. And he is the great king and a great warrior king now, the way I described it to my sister, and the way I'll describe it to you, is he is an actor. Bruce Willis is not actually that incredibly badass, right? He portrays someone who is that badass. That's the kind of sa- same kind of thing I'm going with here. This king had never actually had to do any real thinking or hard work for himself, because he knew what his fate was. Anytime he went into battle, he knew if he was fated to win or lose. And if he was fated to win, he'd just win. And if he was fated to lose, he would just lose. And any decision he could have made, he only made because it was fated to be so. He was in every way not a leader, not a king. When the maid of Windermere starts warping the fate a little bit, he gets terrified. He is a he, he reveals his cowardly nature. And, and this is true in virtually all of the Fae, I think, because the Fae as a whole do not, literally do not have the capacity to understand change. Because change is an an, an an antithesis. It's a complete anathema, or anathema, or however you want to pronounce that, to the Fae. The very concept of change, because their very existence is static. And so when, when faced with it, he crumbles, and he gives the only person he knows who can handle this you, the person who is doing something about the situation and has as taken charge because you chose to, but you know, without any strings on you. I've got no strings. Oh, sorry. Um, the reign—you actually become the new king of the House of Ballads. That is a great example of how that infa- affects them, and much much talk is done throughout the course of the game about the vast differences in perspective between the Fey and the mortals. Keep in mind, this is with fate being taken in mind. Mortals know about fate too. They can't see it as much, and they don't have the telling, which I'll get into in a moment. But they still know they are fated, and they can go to a fate weaver and say, What's going to happen to my life? Oh, ABC. That sucks. (sighs) Okay, whatever. But the Fae, they are a concrete slab. They don't change, they don't alter. The only times that anything ever happens to change the Fae at all, it's always affected by either you or the Prismere. Fun little side note. This is implied heavily but never stated outright, that when you kill a Fae with fate, you permanently kill them. In other words, remember how I mentioned earlier that a Fae will always reconstitute? They won't if you kill them in that reckoning sort of manner. At least that's what I believe. By the way, another fun fact The Fae are also no longer immortal After the postgame So they would they would now have a mortal society Having just previously been an immortal society in the, in the sequel Which again sounds like Just a huge setup for a great story That I really wish we'd gotten Because so, again, think about a society That has never known death or change Which suddenly now knows both Just like that Yeah The telling then the telling is really fascinating. There are stories in Fae culture and lore and they retell them every now and again. And the telling is basically you take a role from the story, you literally take that name and that name becomes your identity. And the world will literally shift to accommodate the fact that that story is happening again. My favorite example of this is again early on. When you... Uh, this this person is like you know i want you to help me summon a troll from ages past because he has a valuable gem on him i don't want to steal how do you summon it well the troll is part of a telling one of these stories so what you do is you go in and act all the instance all the things that happened in the beginning parts of the story and then the troll is just there keep in mind he was dead prior to this and not do to be resurrected for several more years. But he just gets right back up and, and comes after you because the telling is happening. So the world will literally reshape itself to to fit a story that is being told at any given point in time. This happens a lot with the course to, uh, through the course of a lot of the fey quests, too. Um, and we get to see the impact of of Prismere on the telling much later in the game, especially with the House of Sorrows. Um, so it's just a fascinating concept because they adhere to this in the most extreme manner, if, if you've ever seen a LARPer or a role player, you have not seen one until you've seen these fay. These guys adhere to this so severely that they effectively do take on the identity of whoever it is that they are portraying. And sometimes they change roles. Sometimes they, they portray someone differently. Sometimes someone new portrays this new role. And who portrays what? There's a whole societal and cultural implication of how different people get different roles and it's just fascinating the way that whole thing works but I think the thing I love most about it is what I already talked about primarily aka the world rewriting itself that is just a fascinating concept um, it's also very likely given the, the the way that the game ended that that actually will not work anymore in the uh, in the new post game there's something in my time it's bothering me um, there's also another fascination with the Fae that I just feel like sharing for a species that can't age, uh, or rather can't die, I should say, permanently, and don't have like any concept of change or anything like that, they're really fascinated with their titles, aren't they? A lot of Fae go by multiple titles, including several past titles uh, and the current Telling, whatever they are in the Tellings titles. And so you'll, you'll see I am the... And then there's like five titles that they go by. And they they expect to adhere to all of them. Because, and I think this this is just my impression, I feel like the main reason that is is because it's the closest thing they have to a real sense of identity. Given the fact that their names, and in many ways personalities, can and are changed by the telling and by uh, the cyclical nature of the world, let's see that spiral again, the only way to really distinguish yourself is to maintain track of all those titles you have earned and currently have. You know, that kind of a thing. Just my opinion on it. Um I already talked about the fate thing. I already talked about the cycles thing. Let's talk about the Ragnarok thing. this is this game is Ragnarok interrupted. Um as I mentioned, the world was not only fated to die soon, but it was already on its way out. the world this and, and this is such a weird example of this, but it's because it's like the quiet apocalypse. I've talked about this concept before. The idea that the world is about to end and it doesn't really feel like it. you know there's no Giant grinning uh, moon up in the sky, staring down at you, saying three days. Instead, it's just life is just going about its normal thing. People are farming and you know fighting off bandits in the road and doing their thing, plying their trade. But again, I want to stress: without the, inclu- the inclusion of the player, the entire world was going to end. Tiernock was going to break out, crush and destroy everything, and the world was going to cease. And the Fey knew this. It was fated to happen. The world was fated to end. And it's hard to explain it, but the world has this overall feel of... I'm trying to think of how to put it. It's actually in many ways similar to Dark Souls, just not so depressing that it sent me into a depressive episode. Um, In other words, there was once this great glory here. There isn't any more. Now, it's not, like, it's not as bad as Dark Souls, because there are still kingdoms, there are still people, you know, there's still life and happiness and brightness and other good things. But you see so many of the remnants of what once was. The Warsworn are probably one of the best examples of this. How the Warsworn used to be this great, effectively paladin order of people who fought against the Nescaru, which I'll talk about in a moment, and, um, and you know, helped save the world and, and defend the people without cost of themselves, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now they're just a band of mercenaries, basically, who are barely keeping up with things. And they're not the only example of it. The Travelers are a great example of that. All of the Fae are a great example of that. And the Fae themselves, on many occasions, talk about how they know that they're already on the way out. That the end of the world has already started happening, and it started happening years and years ago. And the whole world feels like, like it's already over the edge of the waterfall, and it's, just, it's caught that one log right there, and it's just dangling right here. And then the player player character comes by and says, no, no, here, here. You're fine. (laughs) Because you really do interrupt the Ragnarok right before it starts. And then the funny thing is, though, and this, again, fits very well, because of the fact that you interrupted in the way you did and because of the fact that the world was the quiet apocalypse, nothing was really showing that, that destruction or chaos and, you know, no giant moon, all of a sudden the world is fine. I mean, there's a mess here and there, and there's some things that need to be cleaned up, but for the most part the infrastructure of the world keeps going. There is no apocalypse, in other words. So, Amarillo 2 would not be post-apocalypse because the apocalypse was cancelled. Forgive me for the quote. It's just fascinating the way they do that. Um, there's a lot of other little uh, tidbits that, that really show, you know, the old civilization kind of thing. There's giant bones here or there from creatures you don't even know what they are. Uh, there's a lot of ruins, which have great deal of, of old uh, power and technology to them. There's the fact that the Arathi are gone, you know. A few talks about the old ages, that kind of thing. It's just an overall theme uh, connecting the whole piece. The, you know, the Ragnarok interrupted. Uh, it's literally what my note is, Ragnarok interrupted here. Um... <coughs> Excuse me. Ah, So, let's talk about Prismere really quick. Prismere is, in my opinion, uh, a cliché, but a good one. In other words, it's something that you see a lot. Uh, see Tiberian over in the Command & Conquer series. Phase on in that thing, uh, blood of the old gods in a lot of works, you know. It's the same it's always the same kind of concept. Some kind of vaguely alien, vaguely not right, fantasy mystical whatever, substance that has great power and affects things around it. And in many ways drives the plot. In this case, as I said, Prismere has a literal definition. We know what Prismir is. It is a physical manifestation of the tremendous power that Tiernoch has. I think it's really well uh, demonstrated uh, especially given the fact that it actually has the ability to alter fate, which is the primary, or I should say distend fate, which is the primary function of this world. But I have a theory, two theories actually, about why it affects certain things so severely, namely the Fae. Remember that every Fey that is using or affected by Prismir basically goes nuts. Completely shifts in all personality to just this doom cultist, we need to kill everything, oh my god kind of a situation, which is... Quite a bit of a shift for the Fae. The first and most obvious thing is the fact that Tiernock herself is a Fae. She's just a super powerful one. And so the idea that a Fae with tremendous power can influence other Fae to, to I don't know, think the way she does because Fae by themselves are very patterned and as I already mentioned with regards to the telling, will literally change their personalities and perspectives to accustom whatever new role they're supposed to play, that her power is so tremendous that it basically just kind of overwrites theirs. And they are effectively following this new telling. Her telling. That's the first and obvious theory. The second one is a little quieter, and has to do with the idea that Tiernak was not the instigator of the whole fate thing. In other words, the world was fated to die. We know that. Ragnarok interrupted. Would it not be interesting if the fact that the Fey are so integrally tied into the way that fate works and the world works, that with something that powerful influencing them, the whole reason why the Prismere was getting so much more prolific by the end of the game was not just because the barrier was weakening and she was ma- manifesting her power more, it was because the world was actively falling apart on a metaphysical level. And so the Fey which are integrally tied into the metaphysical in a literal and metaphysical way, were therefore deeply affected by this physical manifestation of the end of the world. Again, just some food for thought. Uh, I'm going to make a quick note here. Uh, There's a ton of this game that is inspired by Celtic uh, mythos, or mythos if you prefer, and it shows all over the place. I'm not going to go over the list. Uh, One of my viewers in the stream was kind enough to list several examples of how this game was inspired and drew from Celtic mythos. I think it's really good, uh, very, very well presented. Uh, Obviously not 100% loyal to the uh, source material, but then again, I also don't think it should be. I've always felt interpretive works is the best way to use a mythos in a game. And I know this is a weird example, but Sea God of War as a good way to use Greek mythos. Uh, Probably a better example of that would be uh, Age of Empires, or, or Age of Mythology, excuse me which is inspired by several different, different types of mythos. But anyways, a couple few thoughts before I'm at the end here. My first... This is just a side note. I mean, literally, I only have two more notes here, and then I'm finally done. Uh, this is just a side note, but the Warsworn immediately reminded me of the Brotherhood of Steel from Fallout. They used to be great, and they, ha- they they have good intentions. You know, they're not evil people, and yet they are stubborn and blind, and they their adherence to Discipline, uh, to, to doctrine and to tradition has literally hampered their ability to function, and so they've gotten worse over the years. Kind of sounds similar, right? I mean, the idea of what the, the war sworn were capable of doing back in the day against the Niskaru is is emphasized many times. Again, there's that whole, you know, glories of the days past theme. And yet, again, nowadays they're mercenaries. Admittedly, really good mercenaries, very well equipped mercenaries, very well, you know, funded mercenaries, but still a fighting force that doesn't really do much else, you know. If not for the player character coming along, well, let's just say that I'm not sure what uh, Kamazandu would have actually done, which brings me to my next point. The Arathi and the Niskaru. Now, again, the Arathi and the Niskaru are huge and obvious plot hooks that are never followed up on. In other words, they were meant to be something that would happen in Kingdoms of Amalur 2. Probably the primary focus of the story, or the plot, I should say, uh, of of Amalur 2, at least the first, you know the first arc of the MMO, at least that's my opinion, because, let me explain what I mean. The Niskaru are basically demons, and the Irathi are basically angels. Now, I know that's a simplification, but it's the simplest way to get across the information in a, few, a fewest amount of words. The Erathi left, again, there's that theme coming in, the Erathi left a while ago. The Erathi are best described as creatures of order. Uh, they were very much inc- inclined towards life, cooperation, coordination, healing, that kind of thing. They were, And I know some people think order is not necessarily good, and that's true, but in a patterned world like this one, order is very much good. And they were very altruistic in many ways, at least from what we understand. Again, you know, tales, mythos, etc., um, they were very advanced technologically, they were very advanced magically, a lot of the, the ancient artifacts of the first age are Arathi, and they left no real understanding or explanation of why. So that, that's just kind of left there for us to ponder. That brings us to the Niskaru, which are agents of chaos. And again, in this case, chaos is basically evil because patterned world, etc. Here's a couple interesting things about the Niskaru, though. I had a theory even before I finished the Warsworn quest that the Niskaru and the uh, Arathi were both actually Fae. Now again, we already know that Fae uh, can manifest in multiple different forms, and Fae is effectively a type of life form rather than a species itself. So it's not really that out of bounds to say that the Niskaru and Arathi were both Fey, or at the very least just the Niskaru. I mentioned before the Warsworn quest, though, because you literally hear one singular Nisgaru talk in the entire game, and it is uh, Kamazandu, the one who talks to you at the end of the Warthorne quest. And he sounds like a fey does. Same accent, same speech patterns, same overall tone, and it's probably helped that it's one of the same voice actors whose voices a lot of fey throughout the game. But the point remains, that wasn't done on, on accident. That really started making me wonder. And again, I feel like the further uh, implications of the Fae and their connection to Tiernock and what used to happen and all that fun stuff would have been a great thing to explore in the future. Again, no real conclusions here, just food for thought. Um, my final thoughts about this game. I'm done with all that. I, I was actually going to talk about my theories about the Fate thing and Tiernock at the very end, so I've already talked about that, so I don't have that to talk about. The last thing I want to say about this game, though, is that you should buy this game. No, hear me out, okay? If you buy this game right now, no one who should benefit from it benefits from it, right? The people who made this game disbanded twice. First when the initial company failed, and then when they were eaten up, and then were, were uh, dissolved again. So the actual developers, who I want to point out did an amazing job and made a truly incredible art game will not get, you know, they will, they will get no, they might at the best get satisfaction from knowing people are buying and talking about it, but even that would come from word of mouth they don't get a sales figure um, they don't get money from it and they don't get a, a, someone telling them, well we sold this many units of this game, yay, they get no benefit from it, the company who owns the rights to it Well, they don't really get any benefit from it either. And neither does the publisher, which in this case is EA, so who cares. But point being, so why bother buying it? Why do I encourage you so much to buy this game? Video games are awesome. And one of the ways video games are awesome, arguably the way video games are awesome, is they bring more joy to our world. This world has a lot of problems in it. And... In my blunt opinion, every little tiny thing we can do to increase the amount of joy and happiness and overall contentment that exists in this world as a whole, as an aggregate, is a good thing. I encourage you to buy this game so you will enjoy it. I encourage you to enjoy it because that makes the world a better place. You next time.